Stéphane Perrault, Chief Electoral Officer of Canada. Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin. And today we're high above the Ottawa River. In Gatineau. In Gatineau, because we're joined by the Chief Electoral Officer for a deep dive on some of the issues surrounding elections, upcoming, of course, in this country, and the question of foreign interference in elections, which was front and center this past week as we record this, because CSE and its Cyber Center issued an updated report on interference and democratic process in Canada. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We should just dive right into it, but perhaps, you know, we all know kind of what Elections Canada does, but perhaps you can speak to your role within this organization. Sure. So I'm the head of the agency. I'm the Chief Electoral Officer of Canada. Canadians may not know, but we, we're going to be 100 years old next year. And we, so we were created in 1920 as the first um, independent electoral management body uh, in the world. So our role is to manage, our main role is to manage uh, elections and, and monitor uh, and administer political financing rules. Uh, in Canada at the federal level. And is this for federal or uh, provincial as well? So it's only federal elections. So Canada has a very ho- sort of a horizontal model compared to other jurisdictions. In the states, you will have all elections from the tiny local election all the way to the presidential election. So you have thousands of electoral management bodies in the states, uh, very, very small bodies, and there is no central electoral administration. In Canada, we have a centralized model, and, and it works very much in the same way at the provincial and federal level, but they're separate bodies. So each body is responsible for its jurisdiction. So federally, we have one body, Elections Canada, um, technically known as, technically the name is the Office of the Chief Electoral Officer, and, and we're responsible for the conduct of elections. And you're what's known as an officer of parliament. So, so what's that? So that so there's a handful of, of officers of parliament. We were the second uh, created. The the auditor general was the first. And and basically that means that we don't report to a minister. We don't report to the government of the day. And that's a central feature of the independence of elections Canada. I report directly to to Parliament through a House committee, the Committee on Procedure and House Affairs, and, and so that I so I don't get directions from from the government of the day on how to run the election. And in fact, you're not allowed to vote, are you? I am not exactly. You're the only Canadian, correct? I, I am the only Canadian federally who's not allowed to vote. That's correct. Great. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the issue of electoral interference. We've talked about this in the past in episode 63 with my colleague at the University of Ottawa, Michael Powell, and then earlier in episode 39 where we walked through a series of scenarios that might involve electoral interference. This is our our opportunity to really uh, talk to you about uh, the upcoming election and, and what's being done in terms of preparation. Of course, one of the things that has now happened, because it's law, and this is new compared to when we talked about this before, is that Bill C-76 has received royal assent. And so uh, looking at that from the optic of electoral interference, what features stand out for you in that new revamped Elections Act? So there's a few things in the Elections Act that, so I'm not sure how much you want to go into the details, but there's a few things in the Elections Act. Certainly there are a number of offenses, for example, for impersonation, um, impersonation of the office of chief electoral officer, anybody who works at Elections Canada or a returning officer. Also impersonation of parties and candidates, uh, including through the the, the fake websites, for example, or or fake Twitter accounts or so forth, and we've seen that, right? So that's an important uh, offense, and there are new 
powers for the for the Commissioner of Canada Elections to enforce and investigate uh, the Elections Act. There are, as you know, uh, there are new provisions to regulate social media in terms of the advertising that takes place on social media. So not so much the organic content, but there's elements of ad transparency that are emerging. And finally, there are, um, I would say, initial forays into privacy rules for political parties. It's very timid, but it's, it's starting to get there. Right. So there's a, num there's a range of, of tools that are in there, um, sometimes minimal. We'll see how it, uh, you know, how it builds for the future. And there's some rules also on foreign participation. Correct. So, so there was a, a, a full revamping of the, of the regime on third parties. So uh, there were concerns at the last election that some of the third parties were using funds from uh, foreign uh, sources, in particular American sources. So there's a whole new regime on third parties that's much more comprehensive. And it regulates not just their advertising activities, but all their partisan activities and the funding that goes with that. And it regulates those activities during the writ period, as well as in a pre-writ period. So it's, it's a much more comprehensive set of rules. Right. So third parties are non-political parties who participate through electoral advertising generally in the elections process? So it's very broad. In the past, it was, so it's anybody who's not a party, a right. candidate, or a district association, okay. a registered party, or registered EDA. And it regulates them in the past on advertising, elections advertising, as defined in the Act, which included uh, issue advertising, mm -hmm. uh, which is not always the case in other jurisdictions. But it did not include all partisan activities like canvassing or doing, uh, you know, some phone calls to mm -hmm. get out the vote or, or, or surveys um, that may be used for partisan purposes. So now the the range of activities that's captured is much broader, and that means that the funding for those activities, uh, to ensure that their Canadian funds used for those activities, um, is also more closely regulated. Right, so it's not as easy as it might have been in the past for foreign entities or money to flow into the electoral process via third parties. Correct. And Correct. there's a, a full-scale ban now on foreign money in relation to political parties, I believe, right? Or so that was all the, always the case on political parties, but third parties are more explicitly okay. banned. For example, in the, in the past, any contributions uh, received prior to six months, uh, right. six months prior to the red period, were deemed to be essentially the entity's own money. So even if it came from a foreign source, hmm. it really was treated as its own money because it was sort of rolled into its, its general assets. Now you, there's no limitation on that uh, period for, for disclosing uh, the source of the contribution. So there's a number of, of features in the regime now that makes it harder, I, I wouldn't say impossible, but much, much harder for foreign fund to find a, 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 its way into the electoral process. Right. And what about this idea of undue influence, which I believe is tightened up as well? in terms of foreign undue influence. I, mean, I, I recall, in, I think it's 2004, there was some controversy over Michael Moore, the filmmaker, right. making comments as an American in relation to the outcome of the then 2004 election. So there used to be a, a provision that was really hard. It was for fairly broad, but, but hard to administer. So that has been tightened. And it's much more specific in what it targets, the kind of activities it targets, uh, uh, but it does make it more enforceable. Bill C-76 provides Elections Canada a range of tools. Um, what, which of these tools do you think are going to prove to be the most useful as we head towards a federal election? You know, I think the most important tools are not in the bill. 
Interesting. Uh, so I would say uh, in order, um, you know, so not, reverse order, I'm not sure which way to think. I, if you look at the report from CSC that was uh, published this week. Yeah, um, we're going to get to it. <laughs> yeah, and they're talking about foreign uh, actors trying to, to influence elections. And the, I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are they trying to achieve in the Canadian context? And if you if you look at what's happening in different jurisdictions and, and compare that to the Canadian context, I, I don't think anyone is seeing a foreign actor trying to um, push for one party more than one other. And looking at the main parties, that's not how it seems to be playing out in Canada. What we're looking at is potentially uh, foreign actors trying to uh, undermine the voting process or undermine electoral democracy or the trust in electoral democracy writ large. And if, if, if that's what they're trying to do, then what is it that we can do to more effectively counter that? And I think the, the most important thing, uh, not that they're, not that is the only thing, but I think the most, I'd say two things. One is Canadians need to check their sources. It's basic things, right? Check your sources and then go and vote because their goal is for people not to vote, not to trust democracy. So the core response has to be some very basic stuff. Check, check your sources, go and vote. Um, then when you talk about you know cybersecurity, again, um, parties or Elections Canada, uh, returning officers, the most important thing is the basic stuff. We've seen in the U.S., for example, phishing uh, techniques used to penetrate uh, the Democratic Party's databases. So start with the basic stuff. Make sure you've got some, some basic training for your volunteers in your campaign. We are making sure that all returning officers and everyone who's access to a computer, either at Elections Canada or in the field, has basic training. Patch, patch, set, patch. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's the basic. Don't click on that, you know, <laughs> picture of cute puppies. <laughs> exactly right. So it's it's so uh, so we are of course doing much more than that. And one of the things we've been doing over the last few years is making some really significant investment in our IT infrastructure. And we've been working with the communication security establishment, and it's been a very good uh, working relationship. But I think you know you're asking what what is the most important thing that we do, and I don't think it's necessarily legislation or the big money we spend on our IT infrastructure. It starts with basic things like check your sources, go and vote, uh, look at, look at your, your cyber hygiene. Um, so that to me is the most important thing. Right. I mean, it's interesting because Shelly Bruce, who's the head of CSE, she's, you know, when she was asked what keeps people up at night, it's just basic cyber hygiene. She's like, are Canadians actually practicing this? Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you kind of uh, say the same thing. Yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, but that brings us to the report, which which came out on, on Monday. We're recording this on uh, April 10th. But are you worried at all about, like, social media? I mean, there's social media in the kind of, yeah, influence sector. But, like, what are your concerns about social media and its role in elections generally? So as, as chief electoral officer, my main focus, I would say I have two priorities. Is one is, is making sure I secure my IT infrastructure so that I can deliver the election. And my second one, which is related to social media, is making sure Canadians have correct information about the voting process. They know where to vote. They know what they need to do to get registered and to vote. And that's where my concern on social media and disinformation is primarily focused on disinformation about the electoral process. So we have measures uh, in place to deal with that and we'll be focusing heavily on that, pushing out information, uh, monitoring uh, the environment, uh, the, the social media and the media environment. Uh, we also have a, we will have a, a complete repository of all our communications 
advertising, of course, but also tweets, any post that we do, any communication will be in a repository on our website. So if somebody receives a communication, they're not sure it's from Elections Canada, it sounds fishy, a journalist, you guys, can check on our website and, and locate it. If you can't locate it, then, then it may not, you know, it's probably not from us or we'll help you locate it. Uh, but it's everything that we put out there is going to be on our website. So for us, the focus is really about getting, you know, making sure that people go to the right sources for electoral information and that we, 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 we address any, uh, any misinformation or disinformation about the electoral process. And that, that's interesting because I recall in the United States in 2016 there was pictures of you know, comedians, famous comedians, and they'd been photoshopped to have signs saying, oh, you know, if your last name starts with uh, you know, uh, letters uh, from N to Z, make sure you vote on Wednesday and exactly. not Tuesday. Right. Uh, or you know, uh, they, were, they were literally just putting out false information about where to vote. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's that. That's really where our focus has to be. I mean, there's a it's a bigger issue, the whole issue of disinformation. It's a broad issue. It's much bigger than Canada, of course, and it's certainly much bigger than Elections Canada. But our key focus is on information on the electoral process. So um, let me just ask one more question on the social media. Actually, I'm sure it'll come up again, but concerned with the content on social media. But one of the things is like I believe Google has now come out and said that it it doesn't want to have to deal with this legislation. It's not just going to host political ads at all right. uh, in order to deal with it. So have you been engaging with these social media companies on these issues? Yes, we, so we have been engaging with a range of, uh, of media and social media companies, platforms that are likely to be subject to the rules. And so just, these would be the rules for the social media companies themselves to record and then deposit electoral advertisements that appear on their platforms? So these are the rules for all platforms that reach a certain threshold right. level of okay. hits, not just social media, right? Okay. And and if they if they put out advertising, if they sell advertising on their platforms, they have to have a registry of the ads with some basic information on who's uh, posting those ads on their platform. Mm -hmm. And and so we have been engaging, and we will be issuing some guidelines. Uh, we're aiming for the end of April to issue those guidelines because different platforms have different business models. Google has a different business model. There putting ads on other platforms right through through Google and so we, we're going to articulate ways in which they can meet the requirements uh, of the legislation now it's up to them to decide whether they they want to be part of that business or not I can't speak for Google so for these platforms uh, I, I want to get back to the CSE report but but that raises the issue so Canada is a relatively small market for most of these global Correct. social media platforms or search engines Presumably, they're obliged to comply with rules that straddle different countries or potentially even in the United States straddle different states. What sort of leverage does a country like Canada have over social media platforms in order to encourage compliance with our rules in relation to our electoral contests? Right. Well, I, I, certainly moving forward, there will be a, a push uh, to look at how other jurisdictions are dealing with this and to have to tend to have as much as possible rules that are similar. Uh, certainly in Canada, I have a hard time imagining, for example, uh, with 14 jurisdictions, when you look at the provinces and territories, mm. that, that companies will want to comply with 14 different rules. And some of these markets, like PEI, for example, are very small markets for them. So there's a real incentive to create harmonized rules in that area. Uh, this is not something that's going to happen overnight, and they have to decide how much, to the extent that they have to modify how they operate, 
whether they're prepared to do that at this time or whether they're going to wait for the the rules to mature and see if they're going to be because quite frankly these rules are new and they may they may well evolve based uh, on the experience of this election um, and they may evolve in other jurisdictions as well so depending on how much investment they have to make they, they have a, a business decision to to make on on whether or not they make those changes great so so coming back to the CSE report so just to summarize some of the highlights for our listeners who I haven't had a chance to read it so this is the 20 2019 update on cyber threats to Canada's democratic process. You can find it online. CSE assesses that it's very likely that Canadian voters will encounter interference. That's about 80%. That's then they fix an 80% estimate to that. Uh, now, they also say that it's, this is not going to be on the scale of what we saw in the United States in 2016. But uh, there's some other aspects of this which I thought were quite interesting. They said that since 2010, 88% of the cyber threat activity in relation to democracy was what they called strategic, that is, trying to affect outcomes. Uh, the, the rest of it was basically stealing voter lists for cybercrime purposes. And that in half of OECD countries that had elections in 2018, they were targeted through this cyber threat s- sort of situation. And they said that voters are now the single largest vector or the target the of main this, target, the yeah. main target of the strategic effort to influence, which is consistent with what you've said about being able to digest uh, information that one finds on social media, which we just talked about uh, quite well. They also talk about political parties being a target, Mm -hmm. and you've mentioned the phishing issue. So I presume that would fall within hacking more than anything else. And then they also talk about the electoral process, which would be within your remit being a potential target. Now, one of the comments they make is that the Canadian federal system, in terms of the actual voting, as we all know, is paper-based. It's entirely paper-based right. in terms of the casting of the vote, in terms of the counting of the ballot. And yes, we do we use electronic means to communicate the results, but we do have the, the ballots in hand. Like, so there's, there, there, there's a paper record that stays and can be verified at all times uh, to make sure that the, the count is, is what has been announced. And, and there are processes in place. The count is done in public. There are parties uh, and candidates representatives that are present uh, witnessing the count. So there are a lot of safeguards around the electoral process that make it, as they, as uh, CSEC recognizes, um, extremely difficult to actually tamper with the, w- with the actual voting. So it's much more likely, if there's, a, if there's a will to intervene or to interfere, that it takes place at, at other levels, either the party level or, uh, as they suggest, more likely the, 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 the electoral level. Right. And, and so the, the other aspect, of course, is t- I think you've mentioned it in terms of the electoral process would be voter registration information. So you go to your uh, polling station and you're not on the list because there's been a hack of some sort. Is, is, is that the sort of peril? That well, this is another example of, of, yeah. of our regime being uh, quite robust. So, so the, I mean, the two areas when you think about uh, electronic aspects of our system right. is the register of electors and our, our website where we communicate all kinds of information, right? But in terms of the register, you can always register on polling day with the proper ID, and that's the same ID that you need to vote. So whether you're registered or not, you will be able to go and vote. And this is not something that's extremely common. Many, most, I think most jurisdictions do not have what they call often same-day registration or polling day registration. We have that. So that's an, another layer uh, of safeguard that makes it really difficult to tamper with the ability of Canadians to cast their ballot. Right. If you're going to want to do that, it's more likely on misinformation about the, about the process, and that's why we're so, focusing a lot of right. efforts. So go to this polling district and not this polling district. Right. Or you need the robocalls now scaled up to foreign interference. Exactly. Through right. different means or, or other tricks, and we've, you've given examples, <laughs> and there are many out there. Right. <laughs> I, my question 
question is, were you consulted in writing the CSE report? So it really is the CSE report. It's not my report. I did see uh, a draft of the report, and I get, was given the opportunity to make some comments on, on some of the wording that relates to my organization. But it's really their report. My next question is, they actually use a lot of foreign examples. Um, in the report. Do you talk to your equivalents in other countries about what's happened? Is there like a little gang of chief electoral officers that hang out? There, there are multiple networks. So we, right. we, 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 so we, so we've been present in the United States. As I said, it, it, the United States is not a centralized system, so it's not quite the same uh, network. We, we have a network that we call the four countries. So it's New Zealand, uh, UK, uh, Australia, and Canada, and we meet um, on a biannual basis. But we communicate. So this summer, I'll be in London uh, meeting with them and that you know security and cyber threats to the election is top of mind in our discussion so we've we're engaging at that level but we have also uh, people here who've been in European countries to look at their experience and what they've learned from those experiences and how they've adjusted their their processes so we're, we're sharing a lot of information around the world getting and receiving and, and that's helpful in, in getting ready for this election is there any examples that come to mind that you think where they've handled it well you know, a uh, colleague of mine in Colorado, He uh, so I, I talked about the importance of having uh, a basic hygiene training. He was ma- he made sure a few years ago that anybody who touches a computer uh, in, his, in his election has first had some basic uh, training. And that's a simple measure which I brought here to Elections Canada. So that's just an example, but it, it's bits and pieces. Uh, what we do a lot in Canada that we don't see um, much elsewhere, and I think uh, it's important, is scenarios. So we work on scenarios. We, we, we work those muscles, both internally. So we, we built scenarios. Right now we're doing simulations in five electoral districts. And as part of those uh, simulations, we're testing our systems, we're testing our procedures, but we're, all, we're also doing some scenarios of interference or, or, or all kinds of things that can go wrong. It's not necessarily cyber threat. We're also doing a tabletop exercise with, uh, with security partners. So uh, the CSIS, RCMP, Communication Security Establishment. Uh, so we're, we are involved in tabletop exercises to look at who does what and make sure that nothing falls between the cracks or we're not stepping over each other's territories and so that it's well coordinated. I think that's extremely important. Uh, we haven't done that much in the past or we would do that just in a late, you know, in the summer before an election because the concerns then used to be, you know, security issues on the streets. What if there's a physical attack of some sort? Now it's much more complex, many players involved, and we have to coordinate and find ways to work together and understand what who plays what role in that process. There's probably good security reasons for you not to tell us this, what the scenarios are, but could you perhaps say what some of the lessons learned, preliminary lessons are so far? So it's premature because we're doing that as we speak, right, so I don't okay. want to get into, so, and we'll You'll be running a number year. of scenarios. <laughs> but but uh, I think it's, you know, I think you need to do many scenarios, not that you're going to, uh, you know, uh, foresee every possible scenario. That's not the point. The point is that you exercise muscles and relationships and governance. And, you and you've built those networks. Exactly. So that when you need them, they're there. Exactly. And it may be a different scenario, but you have the networks and you've understood each each entity's responsibility. And so in dealing with a fresh scenario that you haven't thought of, and that will happen, uh, but you, you've got the you've got the governance in place and the, and the relationships in place. So by, by partners, you're talking, I would assume, about the partners who form the Security and Intelligence Threats to Election, otherwise Correct. known as Site Task Force, which includes the key security agencies like CSIS, CSC, RCMP, 
who now have to collaborate in, within their respective mandates in terms of anticipating what might go wrong in election. Right. We also work with the Privy Council office, so there's a security advisor to the Prime Minister, right. and she plays an important role in that regard as well. Right. And then on top of that, there's now this critical election incident public protocol, which was right. announced back in January. And we haven't actually had a time to talk about this on the podcast, but just so our listeners know what this it's is. It's like there isn't anything happening, Craig. We try, people. <laughs> we try. So th- the idea here is, uh, as I think you and I argued back in episode 39, that if you are going to react to an incident, you want to have the rules in place. Because in an election campaign, the risk is that something happens and the wrong person comes out and says something, it'll look like electoral spin rather than, than necessarily something that's bona fide. Or worse, in the case of the United States, they didn't say anything at all. Right. And then... Which um, is a decision in its own right. Exactly. So, you know, if you become paralyzed, you can't actually work that. Right. Correct. So the, there's a caretaker convention that's in place during elections, which says that uh, the government is expected to exercise restraint and restrict itself in matters of policy, spending, and appointments during the election period, except we're absolutely in the national interest. And so the protocol establishes a threshold in terms of some sort of interference activity, which will trigger an intervention, and there's a panel that decides that. And so on the panel, clerk of the Privy Council, the National Security and Intelligence Advisor, the Deputy Minister of Justice and the Deputy Attorney General, who are the same people, uh, the Deputy Minister of Public Safety and the Deputy Minister of Global Affairs Canada, but not on that panel, is the Chief Electoral Officer. Correct. Quite deliberately. Right. And so it's important on the one hand that we collaborate and that we share information and we'll be uh, working together uh, in dealing with issues. On the other hand, it's important to remind ourselves that w- we have separate responsibilities. I'm an agent of parliament. I don't report to a government, even in, even in a caretaker uh, convention. And we have separate lanes, and these were built historically for good reasons, and there remain good reasons. So what's happened now is we, we, we are forced to learn to work much close, more closely together. It used to be that elections and the concerns we had during elections were all things that really were under our mandate at elections, things that we can wrap our arms around. Do we have staff? Is the training ready? Do we have poll sites properly identified? Is the quality of the list of electors what we, what it should be so that people get the information? Now, that these were all things that are important, but that are under our sole responsibility. Now the areas of concerns have expanded beyond our area of responsibility to issues of national security and intelligence that, that we're not the experts in. So we have to work with government as security partners, and we have been. But at the same time, it's important that the chief electoral officer be the sole person that speaks to the electoral process. So if if there's an incident that may affect the electoral process, if there's a change that needs to be made and announced in terms of how the voting process will unfold, that is solely the chief electoral officer's responsibility as an independent agent of parliament. And it should not be influenced by the views, um, no matter how well informed, or you know, by, the, by, by having to go to a committee to make that decision. It goes the other way as well. National security is not my mandate, and, and the people who make decisions on the national security matters um, should not hear from the chief electoral officer on when to make the calls that they have, the difficult calls that they have to make. So I think it's important that as we learn to work more closely with government, we also continue to maintain a healthy separation in terms of the roles and responsibilities. And this is exactly what, what is trying to be achieved here. So two, two different scenarios, though. Let's, let's assume that, that in scenario number one, the foreign interference is the prime minister is involved in Pizzagate. 
right? right. So sort of the Hillary Clinton conspiracy theory. That would be entirely in the hands of this protocol arrangement because it doesn't touch. It's about the content and behavior of an individual who's a political player. So that's not about the electoral process per se. Correct. So the, the, the people on this list, this panel, would make the call as to whether it crosses the threshold. And for people who are interested, you will find language about that threshold in the document that was released in January. Uh, and we'll make the announcement as per their protocol. Second scenario would be the foreign interference that's detected by the intelligence agencies is, say, when the polls have closed in the east, polls are still open in the west, and there's some foreign actor who's saying the election outcome is X in the east, which may deter people from going to the polls in the west, right? This perennial problem we have with our time right, zones. Right. That affects your mandate. It does, and I probably then would have to make a decision to speak at, depending on the level, uh, uh, about how the election results work and what are the actual results and so forth. And that's solely for you know my area of responsibility. And there are scenarios in between. So if there's a hack of a party database, and then there's that you know that data is used to target voters and send misinformation about the voting process. The part about misinformation is mine. The part of the hacking of a, you know, of a party's database and whether it's a foreign actor is something that involves uh, CSEC, uh, uh, global affairs. It does not involve the chief electoral officer. So, so in different scenarios, we may be uh, each dealing with a different aspect of the issue. I guess my question is then just that, like what you kind of suggested as a part of that answer, which is really interesting. but. If I had come back to Canada in 2012 and someone had told me that, oh, there goes the chief electoral officer, he's off to his meeting at the communications security establishment, my curiosity would have been very piqued because right. that is not something that you often would have seen. Um, the idea of spies and people who are in charge of elections hanging out. Um, and I clearly we're now at a point where the people need to be talking to each other, but that's not automatic, right? There's There has to be a learning process there. Like, like national security institutions talk and think one way, you guys talk and think one way, and then just to put you guys in a room isn't enough. You have to kind of develop a shared understanding, language, vocabulary, yep. um, to make sure that there's that communication, that network building that we talked about. Can you speak to a little bit about what it's like um, trying to build these relationships? So I, as I said, it, 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 you've got it right. It is about those relationships. It's not something that we've done much uh, in the past. Um, I think we're very fortunate in Canada that we can trust our security agencies. You know, the CEO working with the, with national security agencies, maybe in other jurisdictions, would not be reassuring. Um, I think it is reassuring in Canada. I have no qualms about having those discussions with them. But we have to learn, and, and, and within the security communities uh, as well, uh, how, they're not used to working in the electoral context, right? Um, they don't necessarily know what are my powers and the limits of those powers. Who cancels an election under what circumstances? Uh, what do you do if something happens? So we have to have those conversations about roles and responsibilities that we didn't really have uh, in the past. And much of that takes place through you know, doing scenarios, working at different levels of, of the organizations all the way to the deputy uh, minister level. So there are different working groups at different levels working at it and, and learning from each, each other through scenarios on, on how to deal with different circumstances. Because it's like everything. It's like not just even having the conversations, it's the fact that, you know, you have to now have a secured facilities yep. uh, on site. And, and security cleared personnel. Absolutely. So I have, I, have, I do have a top uh, security clearance. Uh, a number of my staff members do, not, not, not many, but a, a number of them do. 
you know, it, it's been a different experience. There are things that we're doing now that we didn't do in the past. Um, I've invited the communication security establishment twice now to speak to the advisory committee of political parties. And the first time I did that, I was a bit strange. Uh, this is my advisory committee. And basically I said, okay, you can come. Uh, I think I'd like you to come, but meet with them after the committee as meeting. It's not part of my meeting. And, and the culture has kind of evolved. And, and the next year they came, this year they came again, uh, and they were part of the meeting. And, and that's acceptable and accept, it's accepted and welcomed by the parties. And they were there, there to create some awareness, especially for the smaller parties on, on basic security uh, hygiene. That's uh, really interesting you're saying. So you're saying the political parties are more or less receptive to these briefings because you would think maybe some of them would have hesitations going ahead. Well, I won't speak for them, right, certainly. Right, fair. Uh, but the very fact that, that now I, I'm comfortable inviting the communication security establishment within the, the scope of the advisory committee of political parties uh, that, is, that is chaired by the chief electoral officer is something that's a bit of a culture shift. Uh, and it's evolved it is, over yeah. the last two years. And I think we're all sort of learning to work differently. Um, you know, the parties are now uh, get working with security, uh, government security partners. They would not have done that a few years back when, in 2015 when you came back, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so so at, at the inception of our conversation, when we were talking about C-76, you said that the, it was a first very timid step in terms of imposing privacy standards for political parties who have access to all sorts of personal information. That's actually something that we were able to talk to Nate Erskine-Smith about, who uh, was one of the co-chairs of Ethics, Privacy, and Access to Information Committee in the House of Commons. Uh, and he raised that issue as, as one of the central concerns that he had uh, in the wake of C-76 and, and their study. What would you like to see happen in relation to obligations on political parties to meet privacy standards? Because right now they're subject to basically nothing. So right now with C-76, for the first time, they have an obligation to have a policy of their own, right. whatever that policy is. And it has to cover a number of topics, but not all of the no common standards. topics. And no, no minimum standards and right. no oversight. So the only oversight is really the existence of a policy or not. right? And so that's not enough, clearly. Um, so it's a step in it's a step in that direction, but it's not enough. I would have liked to see parties subject to privacy standards, and we can discuss what these are. And there may be some adjustments to the realities of parties and how they campaign, and and we have to recognize the need for parties to engage Canadians. But it doesn't mean no standards. And I, w I certainly would expect uh, to see in the future some oversight. Uh, and we've seen that in, in BC, the privacy commissioner has oversight, he's exercised that, he's went, he went into the parties, audited their, how they work, and, and made some findings and some recommendations to the parties to improve their, their, the way they, they protect personal information. That's how it should be at the federal level as well. Um, so right now we don't have that. We, uh, the, the, the rules requiring a privacy policy to be posted on the website has been triggered. It's in force now uh, as of April 1st. It means that on July 2nd, they will, by, by, that, by July 2nd, they will have had, had that policy established and posted. So we'll take it from, from there. And, and so I've been working with the privacy commissioner in articulating some best practices over and above minimal, uh, minimal standards or, or no standards. <laughs> and that to encourage parties to develop a sound privacy uh, policies. And we'll see what progress they make in that regard. Well, one argument is if the parties really mess up in this space, they lose political capital in a big way, and so there's actually a strong incentive for parties to have fairly robust standards in a sort of self-regulatory way, but um, I take it that your view is that we need a little, little bit more public law architecture there. 
Correct. And if that's the case, then why not have standards? If right, if 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 there's an incentive already to have privacy protections, then why not impose them? Right. If they're going to have the common anyway. across the board. Right. Right. So one of the questions we often like to end with when we do these pod sites is, you know, how did you get to where you are? Um, you know, it's there's only one chief electoral officer, so it it must be a kind of interesting story. Well, you went to law school. That's always a prerequisite to important yeah. positions. Oh my well, goodness. Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> certainly not not for chief. Electoral officer. <laughs> so yes, you, you don't want to start your career with a plan to be chief electoral officer. There's not enough <laughs> right. positions in there. Exactly. And in fact, when I when I meet with you know new public servants and young young public servants, or when I speak to my own children, I say, don't have a career plan. Do do what you like, and then and then and plunge into it, and, and be you know uh, give yourself uh, fully to what you do, and, and doors will open and things will happen. So um, I, I guess that's the story of my my career. I started in justice and. Uh, Injustice. I had the chance to work on some elections file on, on litigation as well as as electoral legislation, and, and through that I ended up at some point uh, in the Privy Council office uh, in what became the Democratic Reform Secretariat. I worked on on the legislation in 2004 for political financing reform, as you can see, this bill uh, to remove to to impose contributions limits for the first time, um, and then stayed there for a little while, did some more legislation came back for a short while to justice and then came to Elections Canada in 2007 and uh, as head of the legal team there. I'm no longer a lawyer. Uh, I've abandoned that title. Do you, do you have to give that up to be the chief electoral officer? Or? You don't have to give it up. You're not allowed to practice law. Oh, okay. And, and, and so I, I just chose to, to give it up. It's that. expensive. Well, there's my exactly. There's no there's no point. It's reimbursed by the government. There's no point for for the government to be paying for that that amount. That's great. So, in order to run an election, you have to hire a lot of people. If individuals are interested in this process, they can look to working in this federal election for Elections Canada. Absolutely. So we we will be hiring around three hundred thousand people to run an election. It's a small city. It's a huge uh, population. It's it's quite a workforce, and it's a workforce that's quite temporary. You hire them, we train them, and off they go, and they work for a few days at advanced polls or just one day on, on polling day. And so it's quite a recruitment effort. Polling day is on a Monday, but advanced polls are on the weekend, four days, and you don't have to work all four days. So we're eager uh, for workers. Uh, we can, you can, anybody can apply through our website. That's the easiest way to, uh, to apply. Just go on elections.ca and, and fi- fill an application, especially as you get closer to the election. Um, uh, students, uh, I'm really hopeful to get a lot, as much as many students as possible. Uh, with the changes in C76, we can now hire 16 and 17 years old on any position. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and, and students are, are often our best workers. They're you, they're easy to train. They sit down. They listen for, to a teacher for a couple of hours, and they absorb all of this quite easily. <laughs> much much more easy than, than I would. They're probably better counter hackers too. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but but in uh, but hacking back is like a whole other episode. <laughs> We're not going there today. They're handling paper as we speak uh, at the polls. But seriously, um, uh, you know, as many students as I can get, that would be wonderful. Oh, that's Um, good news. Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us uh, today and spending this time walking through these important issues. It's uh, it's very uh, good of you to spend the time with us. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. Good luck in 2019. Yes. <laughs> and Stephanie and I will be back probably very soon because there's so much happening. Oh, my goodness. It, it's uh, Expect a lot of podcasts from us, guys. Until Just next time. Just expect a lot of podcasts. Cheers. Cheers.